0: A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview.
1: Hello and welcome to the 103rd episode of Curiosityness. I'm Travis DeRose, the host, and we're learning about the origin story, the rise of the personal computer in this episode. So I have on Sean Haas. He is the host of another podcast called The Advent of Computing which is awesome. It's super interesting. So I, I kind of am like a little techie, not super into it, but I enjoy tech and tech news and everything. Um, so I was super excited to come across Sean and glad we connected and got to have this conversation and share about this. But this episode, we we mainly cover the rise of the personal computer. Like how the hell do we have computers everywhere? Like what if I didn't have a computer, I'd just be sitting... At a desk with nothing on it all day I don't even know what I'd be doing I I can't even comprehend what life without personal computers would be like They're just so ubiquitous So this is a That's why we're learning about them Because you gotta know about where this stuff comes from So, so Sean kind of shares like Where they came from How they started Uh, how they kind of took hold of everything the major breakthroughs, things like the mouse and the graphical interface and stuff like that and it's, we do it I I think it's done, we do it in kind of a fun way that's easy to understand that I think you'll really enjoy because this was a really fun conversation and there's a part where Sean tries to explain to me how computers work with just ones and zeros, I'm pretty dense, it was hard for me to really understand that I just can't super get my head around it but we kind of got to it so just stick through that part there's good stuff to be in there so uh without further ado let's get to the episode number 103 with sean of the advent of computing podcast sean hello welcome man how you doing i'm doing well how are you travis doing good stoked for you to be here appreciate it yeah glad uh, to be on. and a fellow podcaster with some some great sound as we mentioned before that's it's nice <laughs> Well, thanks.
0: I'm glad someone can appreciate my setup. Yeah,
1: oh yeah. Hopefully, it's coming across to to the listeners
0: because it's so hard, man. I I don't mean I don't. You don't have guests on your podcast, do you? I do occasionally. I'm okay. That kind of my 2021 resolution is to get more interviews going on the show to supplement. But I I understand some of the struggle. Yeah, I tried it's to tough, avoid man. it for that reason. <laughs> yeah, because like, I had
1: no audio experience. I just started a podcast because like, you know, why not? But man, mm-hmm. it's people, people have let me know that the audio was not <laughs> great.
0: So it's I've been trying to figure this out. It's a learning curve. I'm I'm finally, I think, passable at editing my own audio. <laughs> but as soon as there's another track, I'm out in the woods. yeah. It's tricky, man. Stuff like
1: I don't know, <laughs> whatever. We don't need to get into that. But, uh, yeah. Congrats on your podcast, dude. Forty
0: five episodes. That's, that's yeah. Thanks. That's a lot, man. That's an accomplishment. Working on forty six right now. I'm I'm still blown away that it got past one. Honestly. Yeah. Well,
1: so why did you? What was the uh, impetus for starting? Well, we should. I don't, we haven't even mentioned your podcast. It's called The Advent of Computing. Uh, yeah. Why would you start it?
0: So my show talks about the history of computing and there's this particular slant I try to take where I don't like talking about what everyone knows because I think that's better served by anyone else. I like to do the more obscure stuff. And the reason for that is computers are really important to the modern world. Um, I've worked in it for ever. I've been a programmer since like middle school and got a job once I hit high school. And like, as soon as I could get those like work permits for minors, like sign me up. (laughs) Um, So I've always been a firm believer that computers are really important to the world. And especially in the 21st century, it's Mm -hmm. even more so I can't, or I know I can't, I don't think most people can imagine a world without computers. Um, But the road to get there has been really, really long. And there's a lot of steps along the way that Are important, but no one really talks about. So I kind of found that problem that I think could be addressed. um, That is just making, as I was actually saying before we started recording, spreading a little bit of the digital gospel, Mm -hmm. Um, just getting out the information and stories that maybe not everyone knows, but are still important for understanding the modern day. The reason I ended up going with a podcast is I've worked in like tangential to broadcasting (laughs) Forever. Um, The company I work for does audio and a little bit of video streaming now for mainly radio stations, lost sports teams use us. So I've been in the podcasting ecosystem from like the other side, Um, actually written a lot of software for our podcast management system. So I kind of knew the ropes and it was just a pretty quick transition to move from being on the backbone side of podcasting to getting more into actually producing it myself.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I feel like there's an allure to, it seems like almost anybody could has a podcast in them, I think.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's super fun to do. And the tools Um, are so accessible now that it's, there's not much of a barrier. It -hmm. just ends up being, if you're willing to put in the work and time to make it something other people will listen to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's true that it's not, it's not a big tech hurdle now and anybody can really mm-hmm. do it, which is nice. Um, so did you, cause like, I mean, obviously you're qualified for this, this podcast, man. Like, uh, you know, super techie, all this kind of stuff. You have, you've lived it, but, uh, kind of the, the history or the, the story of it or the developments, a, a little bit different side. Did you, have you always been interested in learning that or was that something that you've been uncovering kind of through your podcast?
0: So I've been interested in the history part of computing, basically, as I got access to a computer. So Uh I kind of grew up in the sticks out in a little bit the middle of nowhere in rural California. Um, So like in my parents' house, we only had dial up until like way too late into the modern day, (laughs) I'd like to say. Um, And we never really had like big new flashy computers. So the first computer I ever used was my dad's old PC clone, which was from like the late eighties. It kind of worked. If you like kick it a little bit, you could get it to run. Um, and so because of that, I I think I've always felt a little nostalgia for being behind the curve. Um, mm-hmm. But it always made me when I look at systems be like, well, that's not a very new computer. Actually. I, I remember having those kind of drives on, that, that old hunk of junk I was using. <laughs> right, um, yeah. So there's always, I've always kind of had this interest in digging into like, why is it like this now when it, it was like this years ago? Why do people think this is new? Um, yeah. So that's one part of it. And then also, I, I actually have a degree that's not related to computer science at all. <laughs> I have a bachelor's in astrophysics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, man. But while I was in... I originally went into a physics program because I wanted to be a professor. It's like, oh yeah, I'll do research. It'll be great. Because I always liked the idea of teaching and doing academia, like research kind of work. And eventually realized that I really don't like formal academics. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not the kind of environment I thrive in personally. I know some people love it. I did not love it. Um, Mm -hmm. But in working in physics and I spent... A good amount of time working in research labs. One thing that's really weird is physics today is very heavy on computational work. Um, So I specialized in computational astrophysics. Very niche sounding. It's not actually that niche in the field. Um, But one thing I realized is they still use a whole lot of old technology. (laughs) So um, I had one internship where I spent a summer down the Bay Area at a research center and I got to work on their supercomputer, which I was super excited. It's like, oh, there's going to be really cool new technology. Went in the server room. Everything was using Fortran, which is a language that was developed in the 50s. And it's just the best they have and everyone uses it. So I guess what I'm getting to is I for some reason in my life, I keep running into really old technology that's still around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of wanted to share the, the sense of wonder I get when, you know, I walk into a server room and everyone's like, hey, here's some Fortran printouts. Try try to figure out why this isn't working on our multi-million dollar computer. Like, oh, Jeez, I man. guess I got to go back a little ways. Right. Yeah. A supercomputer
1: sounds incredible, but uh, I guess it wasn't. Maybe back in its day, it was.
0: It, it still is incredible. the The cluster, it was the Ames Pleiades cluster, which is up there. I think it's on the top. Five hundred or one hundred right now, um, so it's really fast. And they're using Fortran because it's it's still one of the faster languages for doing math for some reason. Hmm, even okay. though it's very archaic, yeah. It just I guess if it works, don't fix it, right? Yeah, sure. Why
1: not? That's interesting. Yeah, and it, I mean, you kind of make a good point of at least from my view of what I know about computers for the past 30, 40 years, they've kind of been pretty similar. Like you got a screen uh, with a keyboard, I guess, kind of since they came up with the, the mouse and the cursor and, and the whole graphical mm-hmm. interface that way, they haven't changed that much really, have they?
0: I mean, under the hood, no. But like I was saying, if something's not broke, you don't really need to fix it that much. Sure. Um, yeah. And so a lot of modern computers have kind of just been coasting. Like there, there's <laughs> definitely incremental improvements. Don't get me wrong. But there's a lot of stuff like the core processor technology that's used in most PCs that I guess Apple's kind of going away from it now. But the Intel based processors are still using they're roughly compatible with chips that are made in like the very end of the 60s that they've wow. just been kind of adding on to a little bit at a time. But they still have very similar guts to back in the day.
1: Man, that's so crazy. That's interesting. That's crazy. I have this, I'll make, I made one of these maybe, uh, I don't know, eight years ago now or something where I took an old Macintosh, like SE, you know, the one with the handle and it's all built in. Yeah, I have
0: one somewhere in the background.
1: Right. They look awesome. They're just cool. They're cool. And, uh, and I I, f- I had one that wasn't working. So I just gutted it, took everything out. And then I took an iPad mini and, and built like a little frame oh, around yeah. it and, and mounted it in there. So you had like a, a little touchscreen Macintosh you could, you know, show photos on and stuff, which is pretty fun. But yeah, I have one yeah.
0: that I got back to stock about two years ago. Just it was broken, wasn't working. I just scrounged the right parts to get it up and running. But they're oh, neat wow. machines. Yeah. Yeah, because you could still. I mean,
1: can you can you do anything on it really, or is it
0: just for fun? Oh, video games. Okay, right. <laughs> There's a couple old games on it that my friends and I like to play. Yeah. Well, I mean, can we? So
1: I I I like I think we should dive into the uh, the subject matter a little bit here and 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 try to to learn some stuff we'll we'll get out of your your brain. But uh, yeah, I mean, we were going to kind of cover the the rise of the personal computer and how the hell. We all have you know computers in our house and we spend hours a day on we a computer. We have a computer on
0: every desk in the world just about.
1: <laughs> For real, a desk without a computer is a rare sight now. It's it weird. It is
0: weird to see.
1: <laughs> it's so, like I, I look at like old movies where a, a person goes to their desk and there's just paper on it. So I'm like, what did they, no, they what did they do are you all doing day? Here? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I know that feeling I have of a a desk that I really like in my office and it's just covered in monitors and I keep thinking I, I should make some space so I can like have papers and pins on here. And it's like, what would I do with that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> if I don't have a computer, I can't work. Exactly. It's the papers are just for looks now these days. Yeah. Yes, yeah. for show. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you want to talk about how personal computers got into today, I think it's, it behooves us a little bit to set a goalpost, right? Like where is this all going? And usually the description that I see most often in sourcing for what makes a PC a PC are, it's a handful of factors. Um, Most obvious is personal. It's a computer that you have that one person has. Maybe you share it, but ideally one person has and one person uses and can use on their own. You don't need help to work with it. Um, What kind of goes along with that is it has to be cheap enough for a person to buy. Right. So, you know, maybe it's a gaming PC. Maybe it's like one of the five dollar computers you can get now, but it has to be something that you can actually purchase personally. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other big thing is accessibility. So it has to be for a PC to work. It has to be something that, you know, someone can figure out on their own that you don't need to have a degree or some classes to use. Right. Sure. Um, Those are like kind of the core of what people have been striving for when they talk about making a personal computer. Um, it's the kind of things that I think today we're just kind of used to. It's like, Oh, of course you have a, you just have a laptop or your desktop or whatever, and you just use it. But it hasn't always been that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's taken a lot of work and a lot of different paths to get there. If that makes sense. Um, and so going back to my podcast, One of one of the overarching themes that I didn't realize existed until I started it was that computer history might be one of the more messy parts of history that you can go over. Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of what happens, of course happens before we have something like the internet. And it also, there's not, it's not like the big man kind of history where it's like, Oh, this one person shows up and then it's done. They do everything right and it's perfect and they write an autobiography. They have notes and everything's archived pristinely. There's, in a lot of cases, at least two, maybe many more people that are working on a problem in tandem that don't know each other, don't know of each other, and are using totally different means to reach the same goal. Um, And personal computing is very much one of those because it's kind of an obvious thing, right? If you have... This cool technology, it's gonna start making sense. That oh, what if what if everyone could use this, right? Because computers are cool, right? They can cut down <laughs> a lot of time. They make a lot of stuff easier. So the next level would be making it so it can cut down everyone's time and make things easier for everyone. Um, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. Totally. And like, I mean, because I would, he- I've always heard the stories, you know, of like a a computer that took up a whole room, but I'm like, yeah, what, what does that even mean? You know, I, I've never experienced or seen anything like that.
0: The, the only analog we have today is actually server and supercomputer rooms, which are, from my experience, loud, just very cold from all the AC, not a place you work. Um, yeah, exactly. Like you were saying a lot of Early computers were big. They were only used for research, Um, and in a lot of cases, you, as a researcher, you didn't get to touch the computer because that is very, very expensive. Yeah, Um, there's a lot of great stories about early programmers that would you write up your program sometimes with pen and paper. You put it onto cards or something that can get read by the computer, and then you walk down to an office. You hand your stack of cards to an attendant who manages the computer for you because you might know how to program, but you're not trained to use the computer. That's a specialty in itself. Um, But here's here's what's a little mind-blowing about the timeline. So the first computer, roughly, the first computer that appears modern, so it's electronic, uses binary numbers, so ones and zeros, Those start showing up around 1945, right at the very end of World War II.
1: Okay. But
0: the first writings on the idea of a personal computer are actually older than that. Really? Yeah. So if you want to look for the very beginning of the idea of some kind of machine that a single person can own and use that helps them with tasks, saves time, makes them have more capacity to, you know, do work, do academic kind of stuff that starts showing up uh, according to the sources right before the first computer. So like the first paper um, that describes it is called um, as we may think by Vannevar Bush. And that is published in 1945. But according to him, he had actually been writing it since the thirties. So if he's to be believed, then it actually predates computers.
1: Yeah. And so, so like the idea, like the ideation of it is like let's see if we can figure out some type of machine or something
0: to to do stuff for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so, getting getting the specifics, um, as we may think, describes this machine called the Memex, M E M E X, which it's it's a thought experiment, so it was never actually built. The there's this kind of weird tradition that tech nerds have where they write out like, oh, using technology that we have today, we could do X, Y, Z, and here's how you could do it. But we're not going to do it because we don't have funding. Just trust us. Right. Um, I've heard that. Yeah. And so the mimex is kind of part of that tradition. The, the design and the sketches that Bush presents in his paper basically show a desk. And inside the desk, there's a bunch of gears, a bunch of fancy microfilm, um, and like something kind of like a photocopier. And the idea is that's all built into a desk that has two touchscreen surfaces on it. And Touch so, screen. yeah, there. are wow. it, it doesn't use the word touchscreen cause they didn't have that word, but they're described as platens that are the size of a piece of paper that you can using a stylus write on to like edit files that are stored on microfilm. So Whoa. technically speaking, it's a touchscreen and <laughs> the whole the whole premise of his paper, as we may think, is that there's too much data, right? That at a certain point in human history, probably around that era, around the end of World War II, there's too much research, too much data for a human, a single human on their own to process. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vannevar came up with that notion because he worked with the Manhattan Project. He was one of the people who managed the Manhattan Project at like the very high levels. And he was realizing that, you know, all these researchers that we hire are spending a whole lot of time going through libraries, reading through stacks of physics books, trying to figure out what the existing research says so that they can do new research.
1: Sure. So
0: he identified that's a problem. At a certain point, that's going to take more time than actually doing new work. Mm-hmm. And so he designs the mimics as a way of storing the idea is to use microfilm, which is just it's like um, transparent film that fits on reels that has little pages copied on it. Um, they still have them in libraries, but the idea is it minifies a book down to something that can fit in your hand. Right. And the yeah. idea with the mimics is that it would be a whole library crammed into a desk that you could peruse through these two touch screens. And then the really shocking thing that makes it tie directly into sort of the more longer lineage of computing is he came up with the idea of something very, very close. I wouldn't call it links, but very close to hyperlinks, you know, like little text you click on websites that connects pages together. Mm-hmm. His idea was that, you know, when you're thinking about looking through, like ideas and papers in your head, you're not like, oh, then I need to go to page two and then page three. You're thinking about ideas. And those kind of connect out in a spider web pattern, right? So you might think about trains, and you're like, well, what about the wheels? How do those work? So that kind of dings around in this network in your mind. And so his big idea was that you could build up these, he called them trails of thought throughout your collection of books. So using those platins, you could take two pages, like bring up the page for train, bring up the page for train wheels and make a link between them. And then that way, next time you were looking at train, it's like, Oh, there's a link to wheels and you just click it and it dings off to the next one. Okay. And if you build that up, you can make this database essentially, you didn't call it a database because didn't have the words yet, mm-hmm. but you can make a database of your train of thought. Um, for how you got to some idea or did some research. And then you could save that down and share it with your friends. So you could be like, hey, I was working on this train problem last night, and here's what I think about it. Maybe you'd like to put it into your personal mimics and see what you have to say.
1: Right, okay. So, so yeah. Well, well, so, I mean, can I kind of, because it seems like he's kind of thinking of like, you know, we have this issue, we have like a library or something of, mm-hmm. all, of all this stuff. Like, how can we make it easy, easier, more accessible? So this is kind of his idea. Um, is Was there a like a search function included
0: in this? Yeah, there'd be. So the once again, it was never built. So right. OK, yeah. Who knows? But sure. There was an idea of being able to search things like paper title or page numbers or author names. Um, and part of that was there were machines that could index information about books on microfilm. There would just be like a really short code. Um, so like the first few letters of an author's name or something. So you could rapidly search through a whole reel of um, microfilm, but it wouldn't be something like Google. It would be a lot more primitive. Um, okay. So it, it's kind of approaching something like a really antiquarian take on say wikipedia right yeah because right. it's this editable kind of database of human knowledge with links between pages if mm-hmm. that kind of meshes with the modern day
1: yeah no that makes sense and i mean it's it's just so um we kind of take it for granted today like the organization of information and accessibility yeah. i think but uh i was even i was just reading a book on uh maya civilization and how they got started and that was like kind of they they're like theorizing that that was a big issue for them because they started to have all these records but Mm -hmm. how the hell would you find the record you needed you know they had so much stuff but they couldn't they had no organization system so they're thinking that was kind of a something that they never really figured out was the organization, but they do, they did have like, you know, uh, deeds, deeds and records of sale and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, so I could see how the first implementations of, of, you know, a computer or something like that would be to just solve that, that problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, this, the whole idea with Memex is it's not a computer yet because those, they don't have that yet. Yeah. Those are just starting to appear in labs um. So in that sense, it's kind of ahead of the curve mm-hmm. um, because once we do get computers, they're like you're saying, they fill a whole room. You cannot touch a computer. That's for the researchers to use. Yeah. Um, and also they can't do text. That's something that we really take for granted today is like we're both on a computer. We have video. We have sound. We have text everywhere. Originally, computers could only do math. So Like, one of the first systems that starts operating is ENIAC. Um, And that runs fully for the first time from... It runs a program from beginning to end in, like, December of 1945. And all that can do is math. You can add, subtract, divide, multiply, and then jump around depending on numbers to different parts of your program. But no text, no storage, just numbers.
1: Okay. So can we think of it as just, like, a calculator, then?
0: Yeah, it's like a calculator, but with the distinction that you can do conditionals. So in the, the theory of what makes a computer computer, or excuse me, what makes a computer a computer, um, there's this idea of Turing completeness, which is a theorem that Alan Turing developed. And the only difference between a calculator and a computer is a computer can, uh, a computer can compare two things. And depending on if they're equal, if they're less than or greater, or some other combination, it can change what it's doing. Mm, Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, by doing that, some very smart people like Alan Turing and John von Neumann, people who are way smarter than I am, figured out that, oh, you just need that little piece, and then you can do basically any kind of math, basically any kind of algorithm, and eventually any kind of processing you want, but you have to be able to jump around depending on data. Okay. Is
1: it similar to when you say that I'm thinking of the like Excel or something like that, where you can kind of do those little equations of like, if the number's greater than nine, then, Mm -hmm. then, you know, change it to blue or whatever, like they wouldn't have colors, but is it similar to that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a in programming. Now it's called an if statement or a loop
1: it's okay. just having
0: this idea where you can test things, where you can do conditional execution that that gives you a whole lot of power that kind of gets used more and more later on. Right, okay. Yeah. So how does the, maybe you're, we'll
1: get to it or whatever, but uh, something I've always heard is that computers are just ones and zeros, but
0: I have no idea what that even means. That, it is accurate. Um, so what's interesting about, Binary, So that's a number system that computers use as binary, one and zero. Uh Um, As a programmer, you never touch that. That's a thing that hardware people deal with. Um, But the reason that computers are like that is, once again, some very smart people figured out that that was the right way to go. Um, Uh It was actually kind of contentious in the early period. But the reason that they eventually land upon using binary is because computers are electronic at least the computers we use today there's some predecessors that aren't but that's that kind of hurts my mind to think about so i keep that a little bit away from me for safety Mm -hmm. um excuse me anyway so since they're electronic you have a wire and it can either be on or off there's no ambiguity right um you can have analog ambiguity but that leads to problems. So the best way to do it is to have a wire that can either be on or off, nothing in between. And that corresponds really well to a binary number system, where you just have ones and zeros, where a zero is off and a one is on. That's important because using a binary number system, there were already well-established proofs for how you can translate between binary and decimal, so the 10-digit number system we use today humans use in general Uh, Mm -hmm. us flesh folk, not the Silicon folk. Um, but so because there's already this robust kind of mathematical system for using binary to build up, um, more complex operations, it ends up working really well with electronic circuitry. Does that kind of make sense? Does that answer the question? Um, I understand the electronic circuitry stuff
1: of there just kind of being an on and off thing. Mm -hmm. um, Because I can
0: go deeper if you need more. Yeah, I want some more. All right. So, what the other reason that binary is central to computing is this idea of logic logic operations. So, you know, you have and, or, not. uh, There's a few others. But the idea is, oh man, I have to explain logic tables. (laughs) If you've ever taken a logic class as an elective in college... Um, basically how it works is you have these fancy tables. It's part of uh, the binary math system and you can put in two inputs that are either true or false each and get an output that's either true or false. And so right. something like the and gates or the and logic operator, um, takes two inputs. If they're both one and one or on and on, then it gives you a one. If they're 0 and 0, it gives you a 1. But if they're 1 and 0 or 0 and 1, it gives you a 0. So it's these logic operations end up being the core of computing because there's really efficient electronic devices that can do it. So actually, if you'll give me just one second. Yes, go ahead. I keep a shelf of stuff. This is a vacuum tube, which... I don't remember the exact operation this one does, but you can use this as a physical device that does a logic operation. So let's say for argument's sake, this tube can do an AND operation. Um, These start being produced in the 1920s, and they can make them in bulk and very reliably by the 1930s. Um, And so how it would work is you can wire in two signals when it gets those signals, it does the logic operation and then outputs those signals. So there's this jump once these start appearing from and relays. And there's a few other devices that can do the same thing. Um, but you have a physical way to do this mathematical operation. So that ties, hey, we we can build something that actually emulates these mathematics that we've already been doing for generations, and we know how to, from very complicated theorems, go from if you have enough and operations and a few others, you can do addition of two numbers. So some researchers figure out, well, we take like 10 of these and hook up some circuitry. We can put in a number, add them together, and output the sum. Does that make sense? Okay, I think let me just, let me review here and you tell me yeah. if I'm right
1: or wrong. So you have, you can send in, like, let's say you were talking about that that table, right? Or yeah. the different chart. So you can send in like a, like a one or a zero mm-hmm. a, and then another one or a zero.
0: It would just like, be a... It just takes two inputs. So two one inputs. input okay. that's either a one or a zero and then one that's a one or a zero.
1: Okay, I get it. So you have... Yeah. And then your your outcomes, you have one, 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 zero, zero, one, and zero, zero.
0: Your outcome would be um, just one digit, right? So if you have put in one, one, you get one. You put in one, zero, you get zero. Zero, one, you get zero. Uh, zero, zero, you get one. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay, I get that need diagrams.
1: Yeah. Diagrams. Okay. Okay. So that I get that. So how is that helpful?
0: It's helpful because like I was saying, there's already a whole field of mathematics that's devoted to binary number systems. So they know that researchers know that you can take Uh, binary numbers and doing these really simple operations on it eventually build up towards doing addition. So if you do something like, I forget the exact chaining because it's kind of confusing to me, but Mm -hmm. if you have the right series of logic operations, then instead of just like comparing two numbers and being like, oh, they're the same, put out a one, you can add together larger numbers or you can do the same for subtraction or any math operation. Okay. And so once these come along and researchers figure out that, oh yeah, we have a physical device that does this very simple task, well, we already have all the theory for it. So they just have to take all the mathematical diagrams and charts they've been doing in Theoryville and then build it using these. Okay, I see. So it just yeah. gets more and more complicated. Yeah, and once you can do it using some electronic device or some analog device, if you're really early, then instead of just having researchers and people doing grunt work with pens and paper, you can automate it. Yeah. And over time that just builds and builds until it hits the critical mass where we have computers. Right. Okay. That's so
1: cool. I would love to see like the physical, like using that, that bulb, like the physical, uh, thing that you first talked about where there's like
0: just ten ten of those or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: That there's, would be cool to see.
0: There's a lot of demos online doing uh-huh. that that you can look up. Um like vacuum to binary adder would okay. probably be what you'd want to Google for.
1: I'm gonna check that but, out.
0: Yeah. And also just going back to something else you were mentioning, these suckers are the reason why computers were so big early on. Oh, because At most, I think the most dense ones could do, like, three logic operations in one bulb. But, like, this is pretty big. This is, like, bigger than a thumb. Yeah, Um, it's a swollen thumb. It's a very swollen thumb. And you need more than one of these to do a single addition or a subtraction or whatever operation you want to do. So you have to have a lot of these Um, to make matters worse They're socketed, so if you can see on the bottom, there's all these pins. So they Mm -hmm. have to fit into a socket, which is a little bit bigger. (laughs) Um, Then, making it even better, these run really hot. So because of their principle of operation, they have to heat up to a certain point to function. Um, We're talking Mm -hmm. hundreds of degrees. So you suddenly, let's say you want to add two, like, three-digit numbers or something Let's say you need 10 of these. That's a heating element from a stove, essentially. Yeah, geez. And once you build up more and more, um, some early systems like ENIAC, I think, had 18,000 vacuum tubes. So that's a lot. So physically, that's a big space. They burn, if you have too many of these, they burn hot enough to melt solder, which means that they can destroy the circuits they're in. So to get around that, you have to space them out. So you have to... Keep a little gap between them so you can force air through them so they don't melt your multi-million-dollar machine. So you end up with a very big room with custom HVAC, custom power requirements, and very very loud operation.
1: Yeah. Okay. This is super helpful, Sean. No one has explained it to me this way. <laughs> I've just heard, that you know, know, it's yeah, it's binary, it's ones and zeros. They were big. No one ever told me why. So uh, this is this is great. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks. This is this is exactly why I run the podcast. It's it's
1: fascinating, man, and I could see how it's it really starting is. to to snowball into you know
0: where we're at mm-hmm. today. So what what's uh, what's next? A lot of angry scientists, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so the next big development for computing, or for personal computing, at least, um, yeah. because for computing there's a whole lot of steps in different directions. Um sure. but the next big thing for personal computing comes in the late 1950s. Um and it's this paper called we're we're still in paperville. It takes a little bit for the the physical land to catch up. Um but in I I believe it's 1955 if I remember correctly and I, I should remember correctly because this is kind of the area I talk the most about on the show um
1: it's but close. this researcher We're, no one will
0: blame me yeah, for it no one go back um, yeah but this researcher named doug engelbart writes a paper called augmenting human intellect which it's kind of a sci-fi title a yeah. lot of a lot of these old papers in that era are really sci fi E, um but it's basically so I remember when i was explaining um the first paper um Oh, man. As we may think. Augmenting human intellect is basically taking the same ideas from that, but applying it to electronic computers. So it's the marriage of this idea of a personal system that stores data for retrieval and indexing. But now we have computers, so we should we should see if those work together yet. Right. Um, And What's really important about that paper is it's where we have the first description of the computer mouse. Ooh. Yeah. So there's, there's actually a little contention about who invented the idea of a mouse, um, which gets kind of weird, but the, the main contention is that there was a researcher in England working for the Navy on a classified project for radar systems. And he came up with, with the idea of a trackball, um, But it was never really used that much. It got a little bit of application in naval installations, and it was classified until like the 1960s. Hmm. So it doesn't spread very far. Um, that happened, if I remember right, either concurrently or a few years before, Engelbart designs his mouse. But over in America, in Engelbart's lab in Stanford, he designs basically this wow really it it doesn't have rgb so it's not as cool but (laughs) you can actually look it up online and it's a wooden box that's about that big by that wide fits in the palm has a button on the top has a cord coming out the top that you move around on a desktop and you use it to move a cursor on a screen and click wow sounds like what what i'm using right now yeah yeah and it's described in the 1950s, built a little bit later. Um, and what's mind-blowing to me is it's amazingly close to what we use today, like you were saying. There's some changes on the inside. The original one uses two orthogonal wheels to encode um, X and Y motion. Mm, right. um, eventually we get balls and then laser mice. But the idea is there.
1: Yeah,
0: It's just not in the exact same form we use today. Um, what's wild about Engelbart and all the people working in his research lab and his research is it actually bears a whole lot of fruit and ends up with a system that looks markedly similar to what we use now. Hmm. So eventually he gets funding, which that's the trick for going from sci-fi sounding paper to actual physical device. Right. Um, he starts this thing called ARC, the Augmentation Research Center, which is part of Stanford's Research Institute, which it's kind of confusing. It's kind of related to Stanford, the university, but kind of not. Their campuses are right next door. It's it's a whole thing that I've never been able to fully understand the relation. <laughs> um, but he gets funding and conducts research with a team to actually take his ideas and the ideas from the memex and make them into something more real and more usable. So they designed the system called, and today this name doesn't work as well, but was called the online system in L S because it was, wasn't online, but it was online on a computer. It, <laughs> there's okay. some drift in the language. Yeah. But anyway, they built the system that using a series of very, very archaic like tricks and sick shortcuts can make a graphical screen that you can connect over a network. Um, It's not a network like we use today. They had a, so they had these tubes, these TV tubes that a mainframe would put a display onto. Then they had, you can't transmit that very far. So they had a CCTV camera pointed at it in a little box. Really? And then, Somewhere else, you could have your little CCTV screen and then you had your keyboard, your mouse and this other input device they used um, that fed back over a wire to the mainframe. So you could use it remotely. Yeah, kind of. Um, It's a step. But then what was actually displayed on the screen, the actual NLS system was it it doesn't look exactly like what we use today but it was a screen that had graphics and text it had a cursor controlled by a mouse you could input text using a keyboard and it had this other thing called a chord set which is just kind of like our control alt and shift keys on a separate device Mm -hmm. um but importantly it you could do windows so you could break the screen into multiple views wow you could have context menus so like hit buttons and do stuff to copy-paste things. You could do full-screen text editing, which at the time was a really big deal because they just didn't have it yet. Um, they had collaborative document editing, like Google Docs, because you're all connected to a mainframe, you're all editing text, so you can edit the same text.
1: Right, sure. And
0: the the wild thing for me, because it's my area of interest more than anything, is they had hypertext. And hypermedia. So think of it as a really early implementation of the internet,
1: mm-hmm. kind
0: of, where you could do markup for describing a page like HTML. You could have links between pages and things in pages. So hyperlinks, exactly like MIMEX and exactly like we use today on a computer and everything. You could search, you could expand and contract things, you could navigate through trees of links. So it, Essentially what Engelbart does is take the ideas that were written in, as we may think, back in maybe the 30s at the earliest, and just throw that onto a computer, figure out how to actually turn the musings of a turn-of-the-century researcher into something physical, and polish it in such a way that we have a fully digital working graphical user interface with web pages. Yeah. Man, that's remarkable. It sounds it's it, wild, it,
1: yeah. It's crazy that he put that all together, kinda of, you know using that description and was able to sort of do it so um this may be jumping back, but at when Engelbart was doing that were there did computers really have screens
0: at that time, or was that something new too they so that gets murky uh, okay graphical displays so the the specific type of displays were called bitmap displays because. The idea is you have a screen where it's pixels and every pixel is a bit. So either a one or a zero and it's bitmapped because you can turn each pixel on and off. Um, So those kind of existed for a, a little bit prior to Engelbart. There were some systems that they didn't use a mouse, but you could draw on them using, Oh, I forget the name because it's not a thing we use anymore. I think it's like a pentanograph. It's, It's like a pin that's mounted on an arm that you can move around that will affect uh, data input. Hmm. So it's kind of like a bamboo or a Wacom tablet. Okay. But instead of having a free floating pin, it's on a pivoting arm. They're weird. There's a lot of weird input devices that kind of die out once the mouse comes around because it it just works. Yeah. Um, And so there were... There were graphical, roughly graphical applications on computers prior, but Engelbart um, and his lab at ARC, they were the first people to kind of put the whole package together and make it into this idea of you're still on shared infrastructure. So you don't own a computer personally, but you have your personal slice of that computer that has your own screen and your own keyboard and mouse and everything and your own files
1: Okay. So, so, uh, so like an office, for example, would have kind of like a a room with a computer in it or with the main stuff in it. And then everyone would have their separate workstation to their desk.
0: Yeah. And with it, it's still kind of a hack to make it all work remotely. But if you have a long enough CCTV signal and long enough cables, you could connect to it from anywhere. And so there's a demo that he does where I forget which center. It was in San Francisco at one of their um, like presentation centers. Um, he did a demo, which today is called the mother of all demos because it's really cool. <laughs> 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 Where he connects over to his lab back in Stanford and shows remotely that he can do all these graphical user things. It's like a. It's exciting just hearing you talk about
1: this right now, and we already have like computers that are way past that. So I cannot imagine yeah. the excitement people would have had to actually see this thing happening in the 50s.
0: It, I can't even imagine how wild it must have been because at that time, we're still in an era where you usually use a computer using punch cards, so you have just pieces of cardstock that you punch numbers in and you go give it to someone at a desk and then you wait and eventually get your program back. Mm -hmm. But to just make the, the like light speed jump that um, Engelbart's lab did must have been amazing to see. Right. Yeah.
1: So what is that? How to what happens with that now? Has that become the new standard? Does it spread
0: quickly? It doesn't. And that's, that's what's wild. And that, Like I keep saying, that's one of the things about computing history that I find really fascinating is a lot of people have really good ideas, sometimes the same ideas at the same time, but they don't always take off. Um, And so Engelbart wasn't a salesperson. He was a researcher. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of stayed in his lab. They tried to make it more applicable to other people, but it doesn't actually spread very far out of his Stanford lab. Um, So not much Happens with his research. Well, more happens with his research, but it doesn't go very far until actually a lot of his lab quits. Really? Yeah, they get poached by Xerox. Oh. In the early 60s. So today, Xerox is just a humble copy and printer manufacturer. They've always been a copier and printer manufacturer. Um, But in the 60s, they established this thing called PARC, the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center in Mm -hmm. Palo Alto, California, since Silicon Valley has everything in it. Yeah. Um, But they establish it as a lab to make next generation copier and printer related technology. Really? Okay. So it's still just
1: copiers and printers they're thinking about.
0: Yeah, that's okay. that's what management's thinking about. But Xerox's main offices aren't on the West Coast, so the idea is: well, we'll give them this research-only center. We'll pump money into it. We'll hire a bunch of smart people, and we'll we'll just be like, hey, we want to sell more copiers. How can you make that happen? Right. <laughs> and they they kind of go wild with the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, they so when they start up, they hire anyone they can get their hands on. And they end up poaching from ARC, from Engelbart's lab, Bill English, who was the engineer who built the first mouse. So Engelbart makes the sketches and designs it. And then English takes those, figures out how to actually build it and builds it. Um, they get him. So they basically buy the idea of the mouse and they also get a handful of other researchers that work with him. Um They, come over to Xerox, to their new swanky office, and try to kind of replicate NLS, which doesn't really work. Um, in, in my mind, I like to think it's because they didn't have the full force of the ARC research lab behind it, but mm-hmm. it, it was probably a boring funding thing or something. Like, oh, you can't meet timelines with that. We'll never sell copy machines at this rate. Yeah, right. um, But what ends up happening is there's... There's a whole lot of smart people at Xerox. And one of them is a man named Alan Kay, who there's so there's a lot of people who aren't well known in computer history that should be Um, Engelbart's one of them. English is one of them. Alan Kay is another. He is like one of these really out there visionaries, Um, not like a Steve Jobs, where Jobs is really good at seeing something, being like, oh, people will buy that. Go get it. Um, Alan Kay is really good at seeing here's how we can get something built using current technology that will actually be useful in decades. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time they hire Alan Kay, he had just written this paper. I forget the name of the paper because it's an awful long title, but it describes this machine called the Dyna book. So Once again, we're in this realm of papers that describe thought experiments. Mm -hmm. Um, But Kays is really wild. The, The idea is, if you'll excuse a prompt, he describes this. No, really? Yeah. Wow. In like 1964, 1965, he describes a computer system that's the same size and aspect ratio as a piece of paper. On its face is a screen that's touch-sensitive. It has a small keyboard below it, which he notes at the very end of the paper, you don't need a physical keyboard. You could replace it with a keyboard on a touch-sensitive screen. No. It runs graphical software. It can connect to other of these DynaBooks using a network. You can download, say, books or software onto it. Children can use it for educational and recreational purposes. And a businessman could use it for getting business done. So he describes a tablet computer and he puts groundbreaking as far as the trek towards personal computers with Alan Kay's work is he describes the DynaBook as a device that children or professionals can use. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, there had been some computerized systems for kids which were really simplified. There had been kind of attempts at teaching kids how to use computers and how to program, but that was always a separate thing from a serious computer user. Um, Kay's vision with the Dynabook is, no, th- this can be the same thing. This can just be a computer that can do whatever you want, and we can make it simple enough for a child to use and flexible enough for an actual like, computer user to use, mm-hmm. which people hadn't really done before. And it it just so happens that that comes in the very same form factor as a smartphone or a tablet computer today.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's crazy that they're, that touchscreens are mentioned so much. Cause that feels like such mm-hmm. a recent thing.
0: It, it, it initially was wild to me, but it keeps showing up so much in the research. Um, and to be, to be a hundred percent clear, it's not the kind of nice, totally flat touchscreens we use today. Right. Mm-hmm. Because like, on phones now, that's completely flat. We just touch the screen and the screen has all the sensing stuff in it. Um, these early touchscreens, the idea is there'd be a bezel around it that had infrared beams that made a grid. So, the idea oh. is you have this grid of invisible light, and when something gets broken, the computer can figure out, oh, that's grid Point five a or whatever. Okay. So It would just kind of look like a chunkier touchscreen to us, but... Did work. Um, yeah.
1: So they had the idea, system. but they were they were using
0: they're to, using what to, they have. Yeah, they're using the technology they had at the time. Yeah, it's. I see. Like how back in the 30s, Vannevar Bush is like, "Oh, we can put books on microfilm because that's the best they had." Yeah. Um. So Alan Kay basically describes the future in one shot in the 1960s. That mm-hmm. that's what I love about computer history. Is there's so many times where someone's like well, I think the future is going to be really big calculators. There might be a dozen of them. And someone's like, no, it's going to be these touchscreen things. Everyone's going to use it. It'll be everywhere. You'll just fly around with it. Kids will use it. And they're like, oh, you're crazy. Um, but Xerox is like, you seem smart. Let's hire you also. Yeah. So they they get to this point where they have a critical mass of just the smartest people that they can poach in Silicon Valley. And they're like, all of you are going to work on a project so we can sell more printers and copiers. (laughs) Goddamn Xerox. Exactly. But they're paying them. So let's do it. Yeah. Um, They end up designing partly with Kay's help, partly with English's help, partly with the help from dozens of just the smartest computer people they can buy. They build this computer called the Xerox Alto named after Palo Alto. There's Creative. a theme. Yeah. Um, the Alto is essentially a modern personal computer. It they never sold any because there's a lot of complicated reasons. Xerox didn't really know what to do with them. Mm. Um, there's this great book that I love the title of called "Fumbling the Future," which <laughs> is the story of Xerox, um, their personal computer branch. But anyway, they build this machine called the Alto. It's about the size of a filing cabinet. It it's right before microprocessors exist, so it's a whole lot of circuit boards and a whole lot of chips. But it has a bitmap display that is 8.5 by 11 because that's the size of a piece of printer paper that yep. you could print or copy. Um, it's relatively high resolution. It's really crisp black and white because the idea was it would be an office machine. You'd use it in an office. You'd be able to typeset all your fancy paperwork that you needed to print or copy on a Xerox printer or copier. <laughs> um, it had a mouse, which they start using rollerball mice. Eventually they build optical mice, um, which is also really cool, but it has a mouse so that, you know, you can move around things on your fancy typesetting display so that you can print or copy it well. And the wild part, and this is where, uh, one of the things that Alan Kay really pushes for is it has a full graphical user interface. And you can find images online. It has windows that have little bars at the top with menus. It has a little arrow mouse cursor like we have today. Um, it has a file browser that has little icons. It's it's a full-on graphical user interface like we use in Windows or OSX or Mac OS or uh-huh anything basically it even has a little desktop that i think you i don't think you can change the background but it's there there is a desktop background with little windows over it yeah and they build it for desktop publishing because you know you gotta sell printers and copiers (laughs) of course that's that's the objective yeah but so by i i want to say the first prototypes were in like the early 70s um they have these machines that look like modern computers. Um, they also have uh, something very similar to Ethernet networking on them so that you can connect them together and most importantly, connect them to printers and copiers. Right. <laughs> because that that's the guys that they're developing it under. Um, and it's amazing technology. It is very much exactly what we use today. There's some rough edges. They're very big still. They're very expensive. But the ideas are all in there and it's all coming from this lineage that's been built up over decades.
1: Right. I can see, I mean, I don't know the full story, but I could imagine there would be a bit of frustration from the, the folks who, who actually uh, developed that with Xerox. Cause it, oh, yeah. it's, yeah, it's like they, you know, Xerox was like, yeah, well, let's hire the, the smartest guys. Good idea. Let's have them build something. And then they build this, which is, incredible and groundbreaking
0: but xerox is like what are we going to do with this this is totally yeah. different and there's there's a lot of um you can find interviews and talks that are given after the fact of people's being like oh yeah we showed this to the xerox execs they're like i love this i don't know what to do with this okay and they try selling them they don't work very well at least for selling they actually have some in um, the White House for typesetting official documents for a few years that <laughs> work really well, and all the secretaries there and the people who use them are like, "This is great! I can make I can make perfect letterhead. I I can save all my files. It's so wonderful." But they just can't nail how to market it because these are really, really these cost more than a new car. They're really expensive. They're it's still Xerox, so it's still for printing and copying. It's not for, or they can't, they haven't marketed it as for the wider world of a personal computer, but they're getting the ideas there. Okay. So this, so this, at least the Xerox machine is more,
1: is it kind of just an expensive word processor?
0: Um, yes and no. So word processing is one of the things it does really well, but there's also, they have graphical programs for doing like, not photoshoppy but for drawing or doing art they have uh tools for programming it of course since it is a computer um icon editing there's actually some video games for it there's a pinball game that some of the programmers wrote for it um Mm -hmm. so it it could be used as a full computer more than just word processing okay but that's what xerox cared about because printers and copiers gotta sell them
1: well, I can I can see like it's it's I could see where they would be like this is really cool this is freaking awesome but like
0: h- how are we going to convince anybody to buy this yeah for this much money exactly and over the course of the 70s they start developing more consumer grade versions um they have these it's called the Xerox Star it's a whole series of workstations but they're still just so expensive and it's so new that they can't figure out how to sell it because, outside of maybe two or three labs, no one's seen a mouse before. Yeah. Um, there's some stories I don't remember if it's from later, but of people going up to a computer with a mouse and being like, "Oh, you just you just use the mouse to point at things," and they're just like, "Oh, point <laughs> right? Like, sure. No, it doesn't work that way. You got to move it." And they're like, "I don't get it. Yeah, it doesn't work." Um, so it, I think it's a matter of being a little bit ahead of the curve, yeah. right? It's not quite there yet in the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: it is. It does take a bit of uh of training to learn to understand the, a mouse. Whereas, like, yeah. you could see why they were wanting to go for a touchscreen initial, like from the start
0: too, because yeah, that's, that's that's a lot easy. more You're intuitive. Just, like, touch it. Yeah, like I want that. I'm going to touch it. Right. Um, and then also, Xerox is developing this before, like actual home computers exist so this is still would have to be in the realm of business a consumer like you or myself wouldn't be like "Oh, go get one of those brand new workstations for typesetting right you'd see it and be like i don't even know what this is mm-hmm. i i've heard a computer you you mean like in star trek one of those computers yeah you wouldn't be like talk to me yeah you wouldn't think oh i need a tool to automate work yep
1: so, okay. So then what's, how does the story progress from there? What, how, how do we get,
0: how do we move down the timeline? So this is kind of a junction where stuff breaks down a little bit. Oh, um, because so, so far we've been talking about, there's kind of this almost direct lineage. There's stuff that goes on, on the sides that don't pan out as much, but this is kind of direct from idea to idea to eventually implementation. Um, and the Xerox stuff, eventually, some Xerox people get poached by Apple, mm. um, which is one way that this goes. There, There's also Xerox people that get poached by Microsoft or anyone who can buy Xerox people because you got to think, this is just a lab where they're like, let's get the smartest people we can, give them a bunch of money, make them think a lot, so they they just get even more useful to companies. Um yeah. But the other thing that's happening concurrent to all this Xerox stuff and all this user interface stuff that's very graphical and modern is people are trying to figure out, well, that's personal. A single person can use it. A single person can understand it. No one can afford it. Yeah. So at the same time that Xerox is doing that stuff, the first microprocessor is developed, which is a game changer. So. A microprocessor, actually, I might have one in my drawers. I'd have to dig. Let's not dig. Um, A microprocessor is a way of shrinking down a computer to a single chip. So instead of having hundreds of vacuum tubes, thousands of vacuum tubes, or eventually thousands of discrete transistors, a microprocessor can be like that big, the size Mm -hmm. of your pinky. and most importantly, you can get them really cheap. By the middle of the 70s, so the first microprocessor comes out in 1974. It's the Intel 4004. It's awful. It's <laughs> it's just not a very useful chip. It was meant for desktop calculators. It was kind of built because some engineers at Intel got carried away. And they're like, well, computers have been shrinking. Why don't we just shrink them more? Sure. Um, but by the middle of the 70s, like 76, 75, you start getting actually useful microprocessors that cost nothing. So you can eventually, by the end of the 70s, you can get a microprocessor for $5. Wow. Yeah. So for $5, you get something the size of your pinky that's a computer.
1: Man, that happened in the 70s.
0: Yeah. You still need some other stuff to use it, and they're still not very powerful, but you can just buy a computer chip, which is really different that's really new for everyone so how
1: did that can you give me a a layman understanding of how that works did they just shrink things down
0: well a lot of it has to do with once again intel kind of acting like xerox and just buying up the smartest people they can find Mm -hmm. um but one of the reasons things get smaller and smaller and cheaper and cheaper comes down to boring stuff (laughs) um It has a lot to do with the methods used to fabricate silicon, um, which I don't fully understand. That's all right. I One of my friends, so when I was in the my physics program at my alma mater, one of my friends was a very focused material physicist. And he's in grad school now doing material physics. So mm-hmm. whenever I have questions about like silicon doping and stuff, he's like, you just should have listened in class, Sean. This is so easy. And then explains (laughs) and like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, The point is they, so to make microchips work, you need silicon and you need specific like doping of silicon. So you introduce impurities to make, to change its characteristics, to like change how well it conducts um, under what circumstances it conducts. Mm -hmm. Basically trying to build up vacuum tube stuff but using silicon um, and once you get to the 70s methods are getting really really good really really quick so you can a- afford now to make really small chips that have maybe a few hundred um, transistors on them so you're taking a few hundred of these and shrinking them down to being the size of molecules
1: okay, okay then, that makes sense
0: yeah And as the FAB methods get better and better and they start figuring out like, oh, we can use chromium doped silicon, which is cheaper to manufacture, or we can use these smaller particles to make this doping, they can make it more and more dense. So you go from maybe a hundred transistors on a chip to a thousand to 10,000. And once you can make the little vacuum tube on a chip, essentially just a little bit smaller, you can put a whole lot more on the same space. Yeah, totally. So, you get critical mass and you get a computer that costs $5.
1: Yeah, that's crazy that the price got down so quickly. Do you know mm-hmm. like like when that the first microprocessor came along, like how much that was compared to like and then how long it took for it to so get down to
0: $5? I'm bad at numbers. I if I remember right, the when the 404, the first Microprocessor was released. It was a few hundred dollars in 1970s money. Okay, and not then bad. not bad. Once, once you hit like 75, 76, um, there starts to be competition, and then that just tanks the price okay. um, because Intel makes theirs. Then Texas Instruments. There's another company, MOS Technologies, um, National Semiconductor. There's like a handful of companies that are like, well, if you can do that, we can. We have the same chip fab plant. Uh-huh. So they figure out the method and get it down pat and they're like oh we can we can increase our density by one iota so we're gonna sell this for a little less than you sure Um, okay and so it just drives to the bottom really quick um yeah and what is also really cool about that and the reason it matters for personal computing is that's the first time that So you you have your $5 chip, but you still need all the stuff that goes around it. So Mm -hmm. it's still kind of expensive, but it's in the hundreds of dollars instead of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. And that's the first time you can do that. So by 1974, we start seeing plans for personal computers. Um, There's a lot of early ones. I'm sure there's a lot of early ones that aren't known about because there's two kinds of people who get drawn to this we don't have the like xerox brain trust over there just galaxy braining and being like oh yes microprocessors they're on a different wavelength you have researchers at colleges um actually a whole lot of undergrad researchers and phd candidates that are like this seems useful let's write dissertations and papers about this and you have hobbyists so there's a lot of people that are Like you or I might have an interest in like, oh, computers seem cool. Calculators are neat. And then they see an electronics magazine. I can buy a microchip now. So they go, they scrounge together some money. They buy a microchip and they're like, what on earth am I going to do with this? Mm -hmm. And they eventually start making plans and figuring out that, well, with a little bit of doing, I can actually make a full computer that doesn't cost a lot it takes a whole lot of annoying work because you have to make the plans yourself. You have to solder everything by hand, but you can do it and you can build a computer as the stories usually go in your garage. Yeah. Okay. So so,
1: yeah. Well, just so, so that really brought it, it brought the price down, I think importantly, so that Mm -hmm. a lot of people could start
0: tinkering with it basically. Exactly. Okay. And that's where we get things like Steve Wozniak in his garage, going to homebrew computer club meetings, and being like, "Hey, look, I have this board. I I don't have a name for it yet, but I I can program on it." Um, and so there's there starts to be this culture of these people who are already electronics nerds, and a lot of them do like ham radio or model trains or something, and now they can get microprocessors. Yeah, so they figure out I would get on this computer stuff. I would be like all those fancy brain trust people and have a computer and eventually some people who are smart enough to market it come along mm. and that doesn't actually start out with apple um it starts out with this company called MITS M I T S and they make this computer called the Altair 8800 okay. which it's not the first personal computer in the strictest sense, there were kits and designs you could buy that had part lists and boards that you had to assemble yourself. But the Altair 8800 is the first system that you can buy pre-assembled. So for like $500 in 1975, you can order in a magazine this computer. It gets delivered to you and it's there. You just get a box with a computer in it. And, that, and that's, that's groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, it blows everything else out of the water because now instead of having to be at a research center or a lab or at one of these really cushy jobs, you can just buy a computer Mm -hmm. and the original Altair is awful. It has like 256 bytes of Ram. You can't do anything with it. Um, um, unless you're a tech head and can expand it, but you can just buy a computer. You don't have to do a whole lot. Yeah. You could just buy it to say you own a computer. Yeah. It's like, Oh, what's I, I imagine there's like this keeping up with the Joneses thing. It's like, Oh honey, the, the neighbors bought a computer. We don't want to be the only ones on the block without a computer. Do we?
1: Yeah. Right. I imagine it's like, you know, when TVs first started coming into homes and people would put it on display in the middle of their yeah. living room to show it's it off. Like,
0: Behold our TV. There's no channels yet, but look at it. Yeah. this cool.
1: <laughs> um, So did that Altair come with a, like a, did it have a screen and a keyboard
0: and a mouse? No. No. Okay. Nothing. Wow. Um, To use it. So the base unit's $500, 256 bytes of RAM, which that's 256 characters of text (laughs) about nothing. It's like two tweets. Yeah. It's not useful. Um, Some people figure out really weird stuff you can do with them, um, but That's the base unit. You can't do much. You can program it with some switches and lights on the front, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. Um, You can then buy a memory expansion board to go up to 4,000 bytes of memory, which is a big deal. You can get two of those, get up to eight. Huge deal. Yeah. Um, And you can get a serial card for it, which lets you transmit data in and out of the Altair over some wires. You get that, Then you can get a separate terminal, which is a little CRT display with a keyboard that can read data and write data out. So it's it's a package that you have to assemble, but it's approaching usefulness. So it's kind of there, right? Yeah. Um, It's actually the platform that Microsoft gets its start on. Oh, really? Yeah. So they the first product Microsoft made ends up being the killer software app. For the Altair, it's this thing called BASIC, which is a programming language environment. Mm-hmm. Um, because, once again, the best you can do on it is text in, text out. So you have to have some kind of text environment, and Microsoft writes that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that Microsoft makes enough money on that to stay alive. Okay. Um, and once the Altair comes out and starts getting popular... Of course, people clone it, people make copies directly, but also other hobbyists start going into market. And so that's where Apple starts showing up. We get the Apple One, which was a device that Wozniak built. And then Steve Jobs is like, hey, we could invest in this. Yeah. We could sell this to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a pretty large glut of other hobbyists that go from building stuff in their garage to, product of buying it okay yeah
1: because at, at the time are these like the apple one and the altair are they really like i mean like you said they're not very useful so is it really just hobbyists buying these things
0: and like being this is mm-hmm. cool let's play with it it's mainly hobbyists and then it also gets early on a foothold in labs because computers are expensive and yeah. you can get one of these early home computers for basically nothing compared to a mainframe. So you just buy one of those. Um, There's some great stories from IBM where when they first started getting into personal computing, one of the reasons was they were selling these scaled down systems to clients and they'd go out on business calls and they'd notice Apple computers or like Altair's or these cheap little dinky computers in their clients' offices. And they'd be like, why do you have that? And they're like, "Yeah, well, it works. Like, I just need to type little things sometimes. I don't need the mainframe all the time. And iBeam's just like, we got to get on this. Yeah, sure. Um, But so there's, I guess the point I'm getting to is there's this kind of separate lineage that appears once microprocessors hit the scene where hobbyists kind of form this pipeline from really new technology down to something that's consumable. Mm -hmm. And then later on, Once the 70s draw to a close, we start getting like the Apple II or uh, Commodore and Radio Shack start entering the market where you have a computer that is a little box that has a keyboard on it that you can plug into a television so a consumer can use it. You just buy it, drop it on your desk, plug it in, and it can't do a whole lot. You can program on it. You can get some software for it. Eventually, one of the really early big things that makes computers a huge deal is you can get um, this program called VisiCalc, which is a spreadsheet. So you can do your taxes on a computer. Right. um, And that gets a whole lot of not so much hobbyists, but consumers into Mm -hmm. it. Because you can replace a desktop calculator, your papers. You can start moving towards a desk that's just screens and keyboard instead of a bunch of papers.
1: Right, okay. This is when it starts to become appealing, where it's like, I can actually afford this. Uh, It's cool and and fun, and I'm interested in it, but it also makes sense for me to do this. There's some usefulness. Yeah, it
0: becomes an investment. Yeah, Um, And that's one of the really, really smart things that Steve Jobs does early on, is he markets, or he pushes to market the Apple II, their second computer, as an appliance. So you're not buying a computer, you're buying an appliance for your home it is a labor saving device it helps you do more and your kids can even learn about the future of the world and computing on them yeah don't want to be left out yeah um and computers in this era in the very end of the 70s early 80s also start showing up in schools because Mm. a lot of really smart teachers realize that this is the future. These kids are also the future, so they they should meet as early as possible.
1: Yep. What one thing I've always wondered is, you know, we're talking about personal computers, which is a PC, mm-hmm. right? But w- today, when you say PC, people you're you're talking about like a Windows machine, but y- people mm-hmm. don't really call Macs a PC. Do you know why that is? That yeah, that
0: has to do with IBM. Really? <laughs> yeah. One. Another recurring thing, if you listen to Advent of Computing, is almost every episode I talk about IBM somewhere. Um, But IBMs, they make a whole lot of home computer systems that just don't take off. Um, And then in 1981, they released the IBM Personal Computer, which is the, like, capital V (laughs) PC. And that kind of solidifies... um, Leading up to that, people had been using terms like personal computer, home computer, microcomputer, appliance computer. They had a whole cadre of very similar terms. Once IBM comes out with the PC, everyone's just like, oh, it's a PC. And then when Apple comes out with the Mac, they're to differentiate it, they're like, this isn't a personal computer. It's a Macintosh. Oh, okay. Which is smart. That's a good way to get people to be like, oh, I, I don't use a PC. I own a Macintosh. Sure. Um but it is a little confusing eventually down the line.
1: Yeah. So did did IBM and Windows merge at some point with that
0: or Microsoft um, kind of. So the whole Microsoft PC connection is really weird and actually has a lot of folklore and lies around it. Wow, okay. Um it, it just has to do with a lot of contention about how Microsoft got the contract, but the PC originally ships With Microsoft DOS, which is just a text interface kind of thing, um, because you can kind of do graphics on a PC, not really. Um, A little bit after release, they start having graphics cards for it. Graphics cards, not in the same (laughs) sense we have today, of course. Um, But Microsoft, through a little bit of wheeling and dealing and buying some products they don't really own, end up. Getting the contract to ship Microsoft DOS with the PC, and then moving forward, they have a really tight relationship with IBM. So for quite a while, whenever a new IBM computer comes out, it comes decked with Microsoft software. Um, they also provide a lot of the release day uh, software packages for the PC.
1: Okay, I get you. Yeah, because yeah. it's I I kind of forget this, but uh, Microsoft started off first as just software company, right?
0: Yeah, it's really. I'm still weirded out that they're selling hardware at all now, <laughs> yeah. but they, for most of their life have been a very, a little bit wheeling and dealing software house.
1: Yeah. Yeah. God, I totally, that was weird. I, I forget that because it's the Mac and, and the Mac operating system are just so together. Like they're created as yeah. one, but Microsoft is on, you know, an everything. IBM PC. Yeah. A Dell computer, everything.
0: And what's actually interesting about the the IBM-Apple dynamic is originally IBM software, or not IBM, Microsoft is software. Um, it's in the name. And Apple is very much a hardware vendor. Um, some of the like, later Apple twos run exclusively Microsoft software. So you oh. turn on an Apple II, it boots into Microsoft's BASIC.
1: Interesting. Um, it's just
0: rebranded as applesoft basic so it doesn't say microsoft on it really um yeah and so they have there's actually so a really cool story where in the um, 90s apple is kind of going bankrupt steve jobs had gotten fired and eventually comes back to apple they're not doing well they're very close to bankruptcy and so he's like well i only have one friend i can turn to so he calls up bill gates and it's like bill buddy pal I need a loan and Gates is like, yeah, I'll, I'll give you whatever you need. Really? Um, Yeah. And they have that relationship because for years they actually worked together. Um, Microsoft writes a whole lot of release day software for the Macintosh.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And that relationship just appears kind of adversarial nowadays because like, oh, they, they make competing products. But until very recently they didn't, they were in, a separate kind of complimentary niche.
1: Yeah. So when did Apple start making their own software? Do you know? Um,
0: the Macintosh was like the first big time. Um, so the Apple one and the very first release, Apple twos had, um, Apple software only on them. Um, they switched to Microsoft basic because it was better than what they were making in house. Um, the Macintosh is the first time that they really write a whole lot of their own software. There's the Lisa and the Apple 3 before it, which both kind of died as soon as they hit market. So <laughs> they're not as important historically, um, right. at least publicly. Um, but the Macintosh definitely is when Apple really hits the ground running as we have a software department now. We have to write a bunch of code for our own platforms.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And then so jumping back to the um, to the microprocessors that we, yeah. you know, how that was such a big deal. Is that essentially what, you know, like when they talk about Apple switching over to their own silicon now and the M1 chip that Apple's doing now and all this stuff, is that the same thing?
0: Yeah, it's just a different type of microprocessor.
1: Oh, okay. It's just yeah. been iterated on and approved, but it's the same basic concept?
0: Yeah, it's still working off just having a lot of transistors on Silicon.
1: Right. So cool. I love that. That, That's, that's still, still where we're at.
0: Okay. So yeah, I mean, stuff doesn't change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is interesting. I mean, it makes sense because the timeline, like that's just what we've been on. So we're iterating on that. Um, So for the personal computer, I mean, is that kind of, is that kind of bring us up to today? Like, I mean, is there anything else to the story?
0: Really? There's, there's one other little link Okay. it makes everything go together so we've been talking about the microprocessor which is its own kind of separate track for a while but there's still the people at xerox oh right sure so eventually those two kind of combine um xerox actually internally made under the direction of alan Kay, because he he's just over there doing his own thing um They make a portable computer that has a graphical user interface in, like, 1978 or something. Wow. Um, That just never gets sold. They make, like, ten prototypes that get destroyed because no one wants them and they're secret. (laughs) Um, But the crucial event that happens that brings the whole hobbyists tinkering with microprocessors and, like, big institution researchers together is both Apple and Microsoft steal a lot of stuff from Xerox. Really? Um, Bill Gates described it as, um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but Xerox was like their neighbor, Apple and Microsoft's neighbor, that they both stole stuff from. (laughs) Um, Because they really did. Um, Since, like, like we were talking about, Xerox just hits everything. They hit all the notes right because they're adapting and taking previous work and putting it together. Mm -hmm. So they middle of the seventies just have a personal computer and it's done. It could have just gotten smaller and cheaper and we would have all been using Xerox computers. Yeah. Um, But what happens is to try to get their ideas out there because they're, they're still corporate, but they're kind of an academic air type lab. They want to do demos and share their work with people because a lot of, researchers there are coming from academia. So they have these kind of um, folkloric demos that they give to companies. One of the people that they give demos to are Apple employees. <laughs> and at the time, um, Apple's like, hey, we." Steve Jobs goes up and he's like, I, I want some of my engineers to come look at yourself. I- I've heard you're doing great things. And I think it was Bill English or one of their bigger engineers was just like, do not let Jobs in the building. He's going to steal stuff. (laughs) Um, And management's like, well, he offered us stock options and that sounds pretty good because Apple's going to IPO eventually. I mean, they're paying for it and they let some Apple engineers in who get a demo of the Alto and see everything that makes a computer basically a modern personal computer. They go back to Apple and Jobs is like, make me one of those. Can I, can I get one of those to go? (laughs) Yeah. And they, they try, there's the Apple Lisa, which is their kind of first attempt at adapting what Xerox was doing, which Mm -hmm. works, but it's too expensive and too unreliable. Um, Steve jobs was managing that project and eventually actually got kicked off of it because he kept messing up their timelines and being like, this is great, but change these things and micromanaging them. And yep. so of are like, come on, Steve, get out of our office. <laughs> so he's like, goes over and starts, um, he kind of poaches this other project that ends up becoming the Macintosh. And so once the Macintosh comes out and machines like the Mac SE that we were talking about, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of the commercial realization of what Xerox was working on where yeah. Apple is like, Well, here's the checklist of what Xerox is doing that's right. Let's just cram it into something that's as cheap as we can make it and Mm -hmm. sell it. And so in 1984, they do that after years and years of work and basically change the game because now consumers can buy part of that future. You can just go out and instead of buying a $500 box that's kind of a computer, You can buy a fully realized personal computer that has graphics, it has um, a user interface that you can just look at. You don't need to learn that much. Mm -hmm. You just kind of tinker around and figure it out as you go. You can do filing, accounting, programming. You can do all these tasks that you used to not be able to do on a computer on it, so it saves time. And you can afford it. It's a dream that you can buy. And then... At the same time, other companies like Microsoft are doing the same thing in their own way. And so Microsoft has a similar thing. I I haven't seen as well documented stories, but they definitely get information from Xerox and then use that to make Windows eventually. And that kind of brings us up to the modern day is once once that gets into the public, that just becomes the status quo.
1: So, yeah, so Xerox was really they really kind of had like a goldmine there. They just didn't
0: know Mm -hmm. what to do with it they didn't know exactly how to sell it and they didn't hit it at the right time because imagine if Xerox, they could have released something very similar to the Macintosh probably in like 1978, 1979. And if they did, and if they sold it right, they would have just won. But the fact of the matter is the home market was very much this line of hobbyists tinkering with microprocessors So that's what consumers were looking for. They're like, I I want this typey type thing that I can kind of program on and do spreadsheets on. They might not have understood that this is the future I'm looking at just earlier than we saw it. So is that what we can um, probably do a
1: few people, but is that kind of what we can give credit to Steve Jobs for is is kind of making that switch in like consumers minds of of, you know, that this is a mm-hmm. computer for you and what you can do with it?
0: I think so. He was, that's one of the things about Jobs is that he was really good at stealing um, and also seeing something and going, not so much coming up with the idea, but being like, this is what people are going to want. They don't mm-hmm. want it now, they don't know they want it, but they're going to want it like a year from now. So if we start working on it, we can release it at the right time. Yeah. Um, that's what happens with like the iPhone people. There were smartphones. People didn't really think much of them. And then Steve's just like, well, I have the platform that I can be like here. This is the future. You got to buy some. Everyone's yeah. like, how did you know you read my mind?
1: Yeah. He kind of lets the world warm up to the idea a bit. And then he jumps on yeah. with like, like a more, perfected product a little bit
0: yeah a more commercialized product
1: yeah yeah well said man well this is cool so what do you think uh do you think we're gonna have another big like microprocessor kind of jump or like you know mouse kind of implementation in the in the future
0: man i don't know honestly um i know quantum computing's supposed to be the future but i think i've been hearing that for most of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least as far as I'm concerned, computers work now. Most people just need a mouse and a keyboard and a screen. Yeah. Um, if something was going to come along, I don't think it would come out of the blue. Um, now touchscreen interfaces are becoming bigger, but that's something that like we kept hitting on. When you go back through the past, touch screens have existed for a while. So it really shouldn't be shocking that once the technology's cheap enough and reliable enough, it just starts spreading.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: I haven't seen anything else like that that is something that shows up over and over again that's getting better and better that just hasn't burst yet. But mm-hmm. who knows, maybe in the next 10 years something will come along and hit that critical point. But I think we'll just have to see.
1: Yeah. Uh, what, what is quantum computing? I
0: don't understand it. Okay. The, I'll, I'll, I'll cut you in on a secret, Travis. I, I <laughs> slept through most of my quantum computing class, or really? quantum computing, most of my quantum classes in mm-hmm. undergrad. <laughs> um, as near as I understand it, uh-huh. it has something to do with getting more than ones and zeros out of a bit oh. um, and just having like an alternate um, logic system. But... I have yet to understand how that's good. Yeah, so, like, would that translate into like a, a more powerful computer or something? It's supposed to. the. It's supposed to be like you can calculate things in parallel better. Okay. Something. I don't all fully right. understand it. <laughs> that's all right. I'm, I'm all about the deep cuts, not so much the new stuff.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> to me, a, a big thing would be when we can figure out like another big jump like the mouse of how we can interact with the computers yeah. better. Because yeah, we're we're really limited to just kind of the our dexterity of typing and in, in a mouse. Yeah, some way mm-hmm. we can plug our brain into it or something would be awesome.
0: And there's like those little novelty brain cap things that yeah. you could buy for a while. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's definitely a reliability thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, it'll be fun to see. Hopefully I get to see a big old, big, crazy jump in something that I have to, you know, learn how to use or, or intuitively. That's the dream, It's, it's right? just great.
0: Yeah. Hey, then we'll have to buy new stuff. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> it'll be the exciting. early
0: adopter tax. Mm-hmm. Totally.
1: Well, damn, Sean, this was awesome. We, we yeah, went for a while. Sounds, this yeah. was a long, long episode, but damn, it was great. I I, I really <laughs> enjoyed that. Well, thanks. I
0: I love getting to talk about my passions with people.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad I could be here to listen.
0: <laughs> uh, so let's tell people about your podcast uh,
1: anywhere we should send them or you want to give another little brief. Yeah. Just, get, sure just pitch us your podcast.
0: So my podcast is Advent of Computing. It's all about the weird, obscure and shockingly relevant history of the computer. Um, I'm basically everywhere. You can find the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever you listen to. Um, I also have a website, adventofcomputing.com, that has links out to things like my Patreon, my merch store. I've been sipping out of my Advent of Computer branded mug, which I can highly recommend. (laughs) Um, I'm also on Twitter at Advent of Comp if you ever want to swing by and chat about computing. (laughs) Okay, great, man. Well, seriously, appreciate
1: it, Sean. It was super fun. Thanks for for coming on and and sharing that whole, you know, history
0: of personal computing. That was fun. Well, thanks, Travis. It's great to be on.
1: Good stuff, right? Told you. Wasn't that a fun episode? So thank you to Sean for being here and sharing all that stuff. Really, really enjoyed learning about that. Um, Seriously, just just love that kind of stuff. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode, too. Thanks for sticking around and being to the end. Uh, maybe you know some tech friends or family members who might also enjoy this story, this fun romp. Uh, feel free to send it off to them. Appreciate the word of mouth, uh, viralities that get sent about. Uh, again, I'm Travis DeRose. This is CuriosityNess. You can send me an email at Travis at CuriosityNess.com. You can find me on Instagram, at Trav DeRose. All the curiosity-ness uh, social medias are available. We're on all there. Just just search curiosityness if you want to find those. I, I post little clips from all the episodes on there, which can be fun and enlightening sometimes if you want to hop on that train. Um, but that's about it. Again, thanks for being here. Thanks to Sean. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you in episode 104. Goodbye.